If you could follow along, John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. Verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Why don't you pray with me one more time? Father, I do ask of you to help us as we depend on your word. We know that at times we can easily just sit back and be spectators of your word, but we do ask and pray that you will help us to be participants as we actively listen and feast on your word this morning. So be with us, Lord. Strengthen us and encourage us through your word. We do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys are taking notes, the title of today's message is... Um, it's working. Wedding, water to wine, what? What are we to make of a wedding, water turning to wine? What are we supposed to do with this? Right. So let's talk about weddings. Weddings. Uh, as I look around the room, I believe there aren't very many of us uh, who are married. But hopefully we all had an opportunity to attend a wedding before, whether it was our family members, whether it was extended family, uh, church members, or friends. And when you attend these wedding festivities, uh, real talk here, right? Honestly speaking, more often than not, you're not really focusing on the wedding itself, right? Uh, when you attend these weddings, rather, you are either looking back and reminiscing of your own wedding, if you're already married, or for those of you who are not, you romanticize about your future wedding. Like, oh, I like how they made this bulletin or invitations. Or, oh, I don't like her dress or color of her bouquet. I will not do that. Or, like, oh, I like this venue. I might actually want to get married here someday, right? Weddings are often idealized or dramatized, yet when it actually comes time for you to plan your own wedding, let me tell you, it gets crazy. <laughs> There's just so many things to consider, so many things to plan, and because of this, so many things can go wrong. That's why oftentimes people pay a lot of money to hire a wedding planner so that it can lessen the stress level, although you can blame it on them if something goes wrong. Because let's face it, no one wishes for something or anything to go wrong on your own very wedding day. 
I mean, I mean, that's like people's worst nightmare, right? Maybe for the bride more than the groom, or maybe for both. For example, maybe you forgot where you placed your wedding band. That's a problem, right? Or maybe the caterer uh, gets caught in traffic so they don't show up on time with all the food and all the guests are waiting hungry. Or maybe your parents who are flying, from, uh, flying in from out of time, a town, their flight gets delayed. That's actually like what happened to us. Like my parents, their flight got delayed, so they weren't there until like right before. Or perhaps maybe the bride or the groom goes down with a stomach virus or some sort of illness. That would be really bad, right? Uh, well, in today's passage, as the title suggests, there's a wedding. And there's a wedding that runs out of wine. Yet Jesus turns water into perhaps the best wine ever. So then the question we're going to ask is, what does this got to do with me? What are we to make of all this? And how are we supposed to apply this passage into our lives? So first, let's look at the, uh, our first point, wedding with no wine. Wedding with no wine. The first thing that we recognize is there's a big problem in the wedding, right? There's a big problem. We see that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are invited to this wedding feast in Cana in Galilee, but there is no more wine, right? Although we're not told whose wedding it was, one thing we do know is that according to Jewish tradition, a wedding feast is the greatest of all festivals that would often last days, maybe even weeks, and for some, even up to a month. Some of you guys are like, man, I want that kind of wedding. Some of you are like, no, I just want it to be done in an hour, right? Some of us want our weddings to last that long, but you know, there's places like Korea where the entire wedding from start to finish lasts like less than an hour. I remember I was late to a wedding one time, like 10 minutes, and it was already over. They were taking pictures, like, what? Right? And then there's places like India, where they actually celebrate a wedding for a month. So if you like long weddings, maybe get married in India, right? Back in the day, like this wedding mentioned in John chapter 2, throughout the entire wedding feast, the bride and the groom, meaning the host of the wedding feast, they are responsible for providing the food as well as the drinks for all the guests. Meaning if the wedding feast lasts a month, that means you would have to keep the food and drinks coming for the whole month. Now, we're not quite sure how far they are into this wedding feast, but there's a big problem. What's the problem? We see in verse 3, wine ran out. Now, they're not saying that wine ran out, so go out and find some at a nearby uh, vineyard or a liquor store. What today's when today's passage says the wine ran out, it means that they couldn't find wine anywhere anywhere. Now this was a big issue because no more wine meant no more fun, and no more fun meant no more wedding feast. There's a saying, right? No wine equals no life. Now I wouldn't go as far as that, but this was, a clear, this was clearly a big problem because there was, if there was no more wine, the wedding feast has to close shop. The show must go on, but it couldn't because there's no more wine. According to Jewish customs, wine was a necessity. Not so the guests could get all drunk excessively, but because it was a symbol of exhilaration and celebration. Let me say this again. According to Jewish customs, wine was a necessity because it symbolized exhilaration and celebration. So wine was of such great importance that if no wine was provided at a wedding, 
the law, there, a lawsuit could be filed against the host. It was that big of a deal. Luckily, that's not the law nowadays because we didn't have any wine at our wedding because we wanted to save money. But back in the day, you could file a lawsuit. This was perhaps the worst. This was, this was perhaps worse than losing your wedding ring or the bride and the groom going down with illness because for the wine to run out at a wedding meant that the childhood dream, right? You guys fantasize about your dream wedding. Your childhood dreams of an ideal wedding has just turned into your worst nightmare. Yet it is in this setting where we see Jesus performing his very first miracle as he turns water into wine. Not just any wine, but perhaps the finest, most premium wine that anyone in the feast has ever tasted. As the host is panicking, the mother of Jesus, Mary, goes to Jesus to tell him that there is no more wine. We see that in verse 3, there is no wine. And and then, as if Mary already knew, as if Mary already uh, predicted that Jesus would do something about this, that Jesus is able and is willing to do something about it, immediately after she tells Jesus of what happened, or, or that there's no wine, she goes on to tell the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. I believe Mary was aware. Mary was the mother of Jesus. Mary was aware of Jesus' divinity, even before his birth. And I'm sure seeing Jesus grow up, Throughout his childhood days, she was able to see that Jesus was different. She was able to see that Jesus would not simply let this be. However, as the mother of Jesus, Mary tells uh, Jesus that there is no wine, Jesus responds in verse 4. Look at, look at verse 4. Jesus responds in what seems to be a very disrespectful manner. Look with me in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Woman, what does this got to do with me. Now, I don't know about you guys. I don't know how you guys speak to your mothers, but if I ever talked to my mother that way, it would not end very well. Right? You're calling her a woman, right? Even call, in, in an Asian culture, even calling your parents by their first name, uh, like, I don't know, at least from my household, like a memestic is coming, right? Like, it, it does not go well. So at a glance, this response from Jesus seems very disrespectful and very impolite. And there are actually some camps, even to this day, who think, that this, way, uh, who think this way and to argue that Jesus, Jesus was terrible, that he showed no respect for his mother. But when we look at this passage in the original language, Jesus calling Mary with the title woman was not actually degrading or disrespectful, but was rather very respectful. The title woman was actually an expression of politeness, like madame or ma'am, right? We see this clearly later on in John chapter 19 when Jesus is crucified on the cross. And before he took his last breath, he asked his disciples to take care of Mary, his mother. And in verse 26, he also addresses Mary as woman, right? Woman, behold your son. In verse 27, then he said to the disciples, behold your mother. So going back to verse 4, Jesus responds, Woman, what does wine running out have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? Now this hour that Jesus is referring to was regarding his death on the cross. 
When Jesus receives glory in full as the fulfillment of salvation takes place, as the beautiful yet costly exchange takes place, that is the hour that Jesus is talking about. Where Jesus takes away what we deserve, which is penalty for our sin by being slain as a lamb, we in return receive what we don't deserve, which is what? Forgiveness, grace, mercy, salvation, a new beginning and a new hope. Jesus is saying it is ultimately not his timing yet for, to, for him to go to the cross. I mean, he just began his ministry. However, although it seems as though the wedding feast running out of wine has nothing to do with him, nothing to do with all, his ultimate plan of glory on the cross, Jesus still uses this as an opportunity. He still uses this opportunity Not only to provide wine for the people, but something greater is symbolized. Something greater is symbolized by the wine and the wedding feast, which we'll get into in a little bit. But first, let's look at how Jesus turns water into wine. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, Fill them with water, and they filled it to the brim. Now, the purpose of these stone jars, stone water jars, were Jewish rites of purification. What does that mean? You see, back in the day, they used to have, to, they, had, they had to wash their hands before going into the temple, and they also had to wash their hands before eating. That was the Jewish rites of purification. But Jesus uses these large stone water jars and asks the servants to fill them up so they can turn them into wine. Now, if you have to fill up these six water jars that were 20 to 30 gallons, you can do the math, right? It's like, what, 120 to 180 gallons? I mean, it must have taken a long time. They didn't have, like, a water hose back. I mean, I don't know what they had. They had probably to draw water from somewhere. But we see no description of any of these servants complaining or doubting throughout the whole process. Yet, just as Mary requested, they did whatever Jesus told them to do. So when did this water exactly turn to wine? Was it turning to wine as they continued to pour water? Did it turn to wine as soon as they uh, took some and brought it to the master of the feast? We don't know. We're not told any details, but what we do know is that the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he called it the finest and the most premium wine. After the master of the feast tried this new wine, he was confused. Because he had no clue where this wine came from. He's never tasted wine as good as this. So he calls the groom to ask because, you see, in any wedding feast or a banquet, people would often bring up the best wine first. Because that first sip, that first taste when when your taste buds are fresh, are perhaps the best. But as more and more wine goes into your system, you can't really tell between a good premium wine and the cheaper stuff. Now, I don't know too much about wine, but I do know that prices of wine can range from like a few dollars to tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And while we're in the topic of wine, um, I just wanted to quickly talk about alcohol. Alcohol, right? Is church allowed to talk about alcohol? I just wanted to... I can give a whole seminar on this topic, but because of time, I wanted to be as concise as possible. But I believe there's a problem in our heads or in our hearts when it comes to the topic of alcohol. 
Now, the subject regarding alcohol or drinking has become such a taboo topic that we're not supposed to talk about or mention in church. If you guys grew up in a Korean church like me, I've always been taught that drinking is a sin. But as I began to study the Bible, I couldn't find any proof that states that drinking alcohol is a sin. But rather, it's written and described in the opposite. Whenever wine is mentioned throughout Scripture, it is always related. It is always related with God's blessing, God's, uh, with joy and happiness in life. Look with me in Psalm chapter 104, verse 15. It says, wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine is supposed to bring joy to the heart of man. And to take it a step further, even Jesus drank and enjoyed wine. Look with me in Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 to 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, referring to Jesus, came eating and drinking, not water, not soda, but and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of a tax collector and a sinner, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What is he talking about? Jesus was not a drunkard. Jesus never got drunk, because that would be a sin. But he enjoyed food and wine, as he often ate with tax collectors and sinners. But to others who see that, they see Jesus drinking with other people who get drunk, so he's like, oh, Jesus has to be a drunkard. We see even in the Last Supper, right before Jesus gets betrayed and crucified, he and his disciples drink wine in the Lord's Supper. Now, there are some camps, maybe some of you guys belong to this camp, but there are some camps in the Christian circle who seriously argue that the wine that Jesus drank in the Bible was non-alcoholic. But then my argument is, why didn't they just call it grape juice? Why did they have to call it wine? And why do some people get drunk on wine in the Bible if it is non-alcoholic? I don't know, can you get drunk on a non-alcoholic drink? I don't know. Friends, what was supposed to be a blessing, a gift that brings joy to the heart of man, just like with everything else, due to our sinful desires, we, what God has created for good, we turn to bad. Let me explain. For example, although the Bible never said drinking or consuming alcohol is sin, clearly it states that drunkenness is a sin. Although drinking alcohol in the Bible is not, it doesn't consider it a sin, drunkenness is a serious sin. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 clearly states, do not get drunk with wine. Although does that mean I can get drunk with beer or other alcohol? No, it's the same. Do not get drunk with consumption of alcohol. For that is debauchery. Debauchery is another word for sin. So then what are we to make of this? Please do not misinterpret what I'm saying here. Don't go around spreading, dude, a sermon today, Pastor Gunn shared, says we can go drink as much as we want as Christians. The Bible says we can drink. Jesus drinks. Drinking is not a sin. That's not what I'm saying here. The first thing we need to consider is that many of us are underage. Some of you guys can try to cut corners and say, well, I'm over 21 in Korean age. Guys, you guys are living in the States. You guys are living in the state of Connecticut. And the law says what? 
21. Meaning it is unlawful to drink under the age of 21, and the scripture clearly teaches us to obey the government, right? Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, whether you, whether you like it or not. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. But the sad reality is that even on our campuses, it seems okay. It is the norm to drink even when you're underage. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's live above reproach. Let's not try to cut corners here. But rather, let's live according to God's word. Now, for those of you guys who are of age, although it is legal to drink, think about the motive or the reason behind why you drink. More often than not, you're drinking, why? To get drunk. Whether you go to parties or at a bar or at a friend's apartment, you're not really enjoying what God has gifted, given you. You're trying as best as you can to see how far can you go before, before getting drunk. As I mentioned before, maybe for some of us, it seems as though we can't really have fun. You can't really have a good time without alcohol. That means you're addicted, whether you like to admit it or not. If you can't enjoy life without alcohol, that means you are addicted. So I I can't enjoy life without basketball. I can't enjoy life without, uh, I don't know, video games. That means you're addicted. My desire and prayer for all of us is to have this healthy Biblical view, not only with alcohol, but with, even with relationships. How should we view homosexuality? How should we view social justice? How should we view even the use of marijuana? If it's legal, does that mean we can use that? If you ever have questions, I would love to talk with you and recommend you some good materials to read and how we as Christians should tackle these different matters that we face every day. But I urge you to have a biblical view rather than a worldly view of things. We always tend to have this mindset, right? How far can I go without actually sinning? It's a very minimal mentality. Why not have a maximum mentality? How much can I glorify God with my life? How much can I eliminate sin in my life rather than How far, as long as I'm not sinning, as long as I can just go right by the door, then I'm okay. Let's have a biblical view rather than a worldly view. Just going back to the passage, so a wedding where wine runs out. Jesus shows up and he turns water into the best wine ever. What are we to make of this story? That's a familiar story for many of us, but it seems a little bit odd, right? It seems odd in how it ends. It ends a bit abruptly with the master of the feast commenting on the quality of the fine wine, but then afterwards we see no records of what happened at the wedding. Do the rest of the guests get to try it? What about the bride and groom? Do they get to try it? There's no record of the guests enjoying wine and living happily ever after. But rather what we do see is in verse 11, is how John describes this event not as a miracle, but as a sign. And there's a big significance to that. Look with me in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples 
believed in him. Meaning the disciples already had faith, already believed in him, but the disciples trusted into Jesus all the more. Their faith grew through this whole process. So second point, symbol of his kingdom and his salvation. Friends, how would you differentiate? How would you define sign and miracle? Let's borrow some help from Webster Dictionary. A miracle is extraordinary event that manifests divine intervention in human affairs. Extraordinary event that manifests divine intervention in human affairs. A sign is something external or visible that stands or signifies a message behind. Meaning there is always a message behind each and every sign. If you look at Jesus and his ministry, there's never a time where Jesus performs a miracle just for the sake of having a miracle. There's always a reason behind. There's always a message behind each and every miracle. And that is why John describes Jesus' miracle as a sign. There's always a reason and a message behind each and every one of his miracles. And that's where John is wanting to take us this morning. From John chapter 2, which is where we started today, all the way on to John chapter 12, there's seven signs or seven miracles that Jesus performs. And in each and every one of those signs, Jesus begins to reveal, what is the message that he wants to get across? He begins to reveal his identity as well as his purpose in ministry. His identity as well as his purpose in ministry. That's what Jesus is trying to convey through all these different signs. So even through this miracle story or a sign that Jesus turning water into wine, Jesus is conveying and revealing who he is and why he came to earth, his purpose. So who is Jesus and what is his purpose? What is the deeper message behind this sign that we see in today's passage? Friends, I believe through this passage, Jesus is revealing to us That he not only has the power and the authority to change physical elements from water to wine, but that he has the power and the authority to change our lives. This is what today's passage in the Gospel of John is all about. We have this great hope and joy in Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, the light of the world, the victorious Lamb of God, who not only has the power to change water to wine, but he has the power to change our lives. And he is willing, by sacrificing himself on the cross as our substitute, as our savior, so that in him and through him, we could have this new beginning, this new identity, this new eternal hope. Say this again. We have this great hope and joy in Jesus Christ because as he came, the word became flesh, as the victorious lamb of God, He not only has the power to change water into wine, but he has the power to change our lives. And he's willing to do that by dying on the cross for our behalf. So that in him and through him, we have new identity, new hope, new beginning, new life. Uh, This this truth comes out alive even more as we look into the different symbolism behind the wedding feast and the wine. So let's look at the wedding feast. Wedding feast is often symbolized in the Bible as a symbol of his kingdom. His kingdom. 
Whenever a wedding feast or banquet is mentioned in Scripture, it is in reference to the ultimate banquet, the messianic banquet, the heavenly banquet that awaits. So let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 to 9. So a rather long passage. Let me read this. Verse. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow or soul, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on him, uh, said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, we see here that God is promising a deliverance from death and announcing a great heavenly banquet that awaits for all peoples full of rich food and well-aged wine. I don't know what a well-aged wine tastes like, but rich food sounds good enough for me, right? This is, in fact, what Jesus has come to establish, a messianic banquet. This picture of the wedding feast is what we have to look forward to as Jesus manifests his kingdom here on earth. He is inviting us to his ultimate messianic wedding feast that awaits. A new beginning, a new life with a new identity as not only sons and daughters of God, but also as Christ's bride. We as a church is supposed to be his bride, and he's supposed to be our groom. And we look forward to this grand wedding banquet where we will dine with him, rich food and well-aged wine, and be with him for eternity. This is the message of great hope because this world tells us something completely opposite, doesn't it? The world tells us that we need to work harder. The world tells us that we need to look better. The world tells us that we're not good enough and it will never be good enough to uh, to enter into such lavish banquet. It's only for the elite. Well, the scripture is telling us in Christ, you are elite. You are the most precious in his sight. Gospel of John is reminding us that Jesus, the word that became flesh into who, who entered into our mess, into our brokenness, into our imperfections, is reminding us that He's all that we need. In order for us to get into that messianic banquet, Jesus is all we need. It is not our GPA, our degree, our accolades, our looks, our health, our wealth. It's not, gonna, it's not what is going to buy us a ticket into heaven. But it is through us believing in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. It is only through His costly sacrifice on the cross that enables us and allows us and invites us to the banqueting table. Friends, this is the gospel message. This is the good, the greatest news, meaning if you believe in Jesus Christ, our seat has been reserved, where we will ultimately celebrate with him for eternity. That's great, but it gets better, right? So the wedding feast is a symbol of his kingdom. The wine is a symbol of, like I said before, salvation or exhilaration, joy. Meaning in Christ, not only do we have something to look forward to, but we are receiving blessings upon blessing right now. 
We can reap the benefits right now. Look with me in the book of Amos, chapter 9, verse 13 to 14. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the, re- uh, the reader of grapes, uh, him, grapes him who sow the seeds. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. What is he talking about? Wine is a metaphor for salvation. And to the Jews, wine symbolized joy. Rabbis, teachers, even went as far as to say, without wine, there is no joy. Going back to the passage in Amos, in in and through Jesus Christ, days are not coming. The days are already here. We see that in Christ, the day has come. Where there will be blessing upon blessing as he restores what was once broken and rebuilds not only the ruined cities, but rebuild our broken lives. Rebuild our broken hearts. As Jesus turns water into wine, through this sign, Jesus is reminding us that he is the Messiah. The anointed one, the Christ, in whom we have salvation, in whom we have new life. New identity and a new beginning. Are you sick and tired of your brokenness? Sick and tired of the mundaneness of your life apart from Christ? Unlike the wine that ran out of the wedding, the blessing that he provides is not a cheap substitute. Everything else that this world offers is a cheap substitute that will never satisfy our thirst. But this new wine that Jesus offers is significantly greater. This new wine, this new joy, this new blessing that Jesus offers will never run dry. It will never run out, but it will quench every thirst. So through what appeared to be a normal, typical Jewish wedding, Jesus used the wine running out as an opportunity. This chaos, this catastrophe, he used it as an opportunity to reveal his identity as well as his purpose with the sign. And perhaps that's what's happening in China. God is using this catastrophe to reveal himself and his mission. And this morning, Jesus, I believe, is inviting each and every one of us to him who not only has the power to turn water into wine, but has the power to give you a hope, a new hope, and hope everlasting. I asked you guys uh, during our service to ask each other how your break was or how your winter has been so far. Maybe for some of us, we had a great winter break. Uh, We had a spirit-filled, restful break at home. But maybe there are some of us who had a really bad one, a really difficult break, an uneasy break. Despite not being fully ready to start the new semester, we're here. Class has already started, and you feel as though you're already playing catch-up. Friends, wherever you are in your walk with God, let's be reminded this morning of this great hope that Jesus offers. He offers us a new beginning. You guys love reset buttons in video games, right? He offers us a new beginning, a new life, a new identity, a new wine that is significantly better and greater than the one that just ran out on you. Maybe it was your relationship that failed you. 
Maybe it was that internship opportunity that you thought for sure you had in the bag, but it failed you. Maybe for some of us, our relationship with our parents and our family also failed us. Whatever failures, whatever brokenness, whatever baggage we are struggling with, let's come to the Lord this morning and ask of him, invite him to remind us of our new identity in Christ. Our new identity in Christ is perfect, beloved, precious child of God. But in order for you to receive this new identity, we need to ask God, invite him first to rule over every domain of our lives. For some of us, we give him rent, right? We give him Sundays. Not even a whole Sunday. We give him Sunday mornings. But from Sunday evening to Saturday night, it's ours. Some of us, maybe, maybe we do pray, but only right before our meals. That doesn't count, right? Is Jesus truly the ruler of every faculty, every domain of your life? In order for us to really experience the joy and the blessings of our new identity and this new hope, we need to allow Jesus to be king over every domain of our lives. And my prayer is that we will invite him to do so. We will invite him to enter into our lives and be the king seated on the throne of our lives. And as we do that, a new beginning with God begins, who promises to never reject us, who promises to never fail us, but to be with us every step of the way until we meet him in that messianic banquet. Let's pray together.